0: a lot of the focus of my research are in tropical and subtropical where we don't have those extreme mm-hmm. weathers in the winter. And it's also associated with a lot of bos uh influenced breeds. Right. And with tropical forages that also come with uh, a really high production and very low nutritive value. Mm-hmm. And I have, the, the academia has allowed me to explore those areas because I am in Florida, that is an extremely unique place in everywhere that I have been in the world, Florida is very unique, but I have been in other tropical and subtropical zones where it varies quite a bit um, because of the altitude, soils type and everything else. So we, we can find some subtropical zones that are really comfortable. Although you can reach higher temperatures, but they are much more, I think, um, suitable for cattle production than, for example, Florida, that is an environment that is extremely challenging for agriculture in general, but beef cattle for sure.
1: A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now, you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket and what's best you can listen to all of them while driving to the farm traveling or running errands it's never been this good and it's never been this simple the beef podcast show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like healthy farms by bioverse your manure management experts contact us for time and labor saving solutions mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry.
2: Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today we are joined by Dr. Joe Vendramini, a professor of agronomy and forage at the University of Florida Range Cattle Research and Education Center. Dr. Vendramini earned his bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Sao Paulo before moving on to the University of Florida to earn his PhD in agronomy and forage management. Dr. Vendramini studies the effects of supplementation on forage and animal production warm and cool season forage management, alternative uses for forage crops, I'm very excited to talk about that, and nutrient management of forage cropping systems. He also disseminates science-based information to a broad range of stakeholders, educators, and producers, and we are so excited to have him here to talk about grass, cattle, and production systems. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Vendramini
0: yeah thank you for having me
2: well we're very excited to talk to you today you know what's new in your world how are you doing down there in the in what i imagine is a very cool florida summer so far
0: yes i think now we are getting into the not the most popular time in florida because summer (laughs) is around the corner it gets really hot and humid sometimes uh too humid And, uh, but anyway, we have a a bunch of our work done right now when we work with farm season perennial forage. So it's exciting to start new projects and and do the work.
1: We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com.
2: That's an interesting way that you you phrase it, not the most popular time. (laughs) That's an interesting way to say that about a Florida summer, but that's when we get a lot of work done. So, but thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be here with us um, during your busy time. Just to get started, for those of in our in our audience and our listeners who are not as familiar with you, or your work, could you please tell us how you got involved in the beef industry and maybe your background and your career path so far? I'm confident that there is more below the surface than the very short bio that I just read.
0: Yeah, um, I think uh, um, similarly to a lot of my colleagues here in the U.S., I was born in in uh, in the country. Um, my parents, uh, my grandparents, my great grandparents, they, they were landowners and they raised beef cattle in Brazil. Uh, so that's how, how I got started. So I was young and I, I think I didn't know anything else. That's what I knew. And I thought that that was the way to go because that was our way of life and what we did. And that led me to, to get my education in, in agronomy, um, related to what I have been gro- growing up on. And and then, you know, it, it kept uh, um, probably progressing. I finished my undergrad. I, in fact, I moved out of academia. When I finished my undergrad, I was working for a company, um, primarily uh, managing beef cattle, uh, a company that has several properties. Uh, so I started on the beef cattle section and then, soybean corns citrus and sugarcane and i work in that company for seven years um, while i was working in the company i also got my master's degree okay. um, by the time that i finished my master i i really liked the experience and dealing with research so then when i decide to come to the US and get my phd and and keep progressing from there
2: well, oh, that's great. You mentioned earlier that, you know, you just grew up with cattle and you didn't know any other way of life. And I think that's true for many of your colleagues and, and our peers in the beef industry. We just it's just everything. It's what we knew. And we just kind of continued into that. So you make a great point there um, about how you grew up and you got involved in agriculture. It's just kind of the way of life that we have been born into. Um, it's my understanding that you are no stranger to the podcast world and you actually have your own podcast called Joe What. Um, can you tell us more about that and what you talk about on the podcast?
0: Yes. Uh, yeah. Thank you for asking about the podcast. Um, that was an idea that I started probably four years ago. At that time, podcasts were not very popular yet, but I, I really felt that through my experience with stakeholders, because I work with extension as well, I have this opportunity to talk to different producers and learn so much from them and hear their stories and their experiences. And I felt that they need to tell that to everybody, not only me, because I was the only one benefiting from from the information. With that in mind, I created a podcast where I invite the stakeholders and the producers that I knew here in Florida and I had previous experience with. And, and then it started evolving to, I, I start including my colleagues in research and people in extension. And it got a little broader. Um, so at the start, it was pretty much the true beef cattle producer. And I, I try to make it short. Uh, 15 minutes. I, I I had the idea that that should be your drive to work. Something that you just press play and drive to work, and you get all the information. So I I got um, some criticism and some <laughs> uh, uh, probably some people that like this. said well, 15 minutes is not enough. I didn't get much out of it, but that was the goal. And I tried to to get some. Uh, some individual characteristics of every producer that I knew about, that I have the, infor- the opportunity to interact with, and and then just broadcast that part. So some of producers they like more genetics, some of them they like more the reproduction side, and so on and so forth. And and I think that was the genesis. For the podcast, and uh, to be honest, I have been very slow on my podcast lately. I think, like you probably know, it's difficult to fit and and get new uh, new speakers, and it's it's a work in progress. But I I really enjoy doing the podcast.
2: All right, well, that's really interesting. That you know, thanks for sharing that about your podcast. Do you? do you stick to one specific topic or do you branch out and do all beef production topics and have you found that um you've have you lengthened your episodes from 15 minutes because people wanted more wanted to hear more from you
0: yes uh uh, first question yes i i open it up a little um i we talk about wildlife as well from some of my colleagues and we also talk about uh, something that is quite current that is environmental uh, issues and ecosystem services provided by by beef cattle in general and forages. Uh, so I think that is it has been quite interesting to add that to, to the topics because I think a lot of people are interested in those. So yeah, um, we talk a little about other things related to beef cattle production, such as horses and, and things that people... People enjoy, uh, and uh, I didn't change the 15 minutes uh, because I didn't want it to to go off <laughs> off the record and start changing. So people don't know what they would expect. As I start with the 15, I decided to stick with the 15 minutes and and go from there.
2: Well, that's really interesting, and I hope that our listeners will will check out your podcast. And again, that's called Joe What, so they can go look at that and get um, a nice little episode about a wide variety of topics um i think you mentioned you you know we talked about you're in florida and it's very hot and muggy i actually live in southeast kansas where it also gets hot and muggy but probably you know not the the level of florida but uh today we have a nice day and tomorrow um for those our listeners that we're recording this the last week of june but tomorrow in the following few days are going to be over 100 degrees that's the actual temperature not the index i don't even want to think about the heat index. And while that is certainly hot for us in late June, we usually don't get those temperatures till late July or August. It's not tropical by any means. I know that you have done a lot of work in tropical and subtropical beef production. Can you just, can you share a little bit how cattle producers manage cattle successfully in this wicked heat and humidity, you know, from your perspective and where you're at? Yes.
0: Yeah. That has been a a big focus of my program. As, As you know, most of the United States land, is in tempered zones, mm-hmm. so they have a different management regarding cattle breeds and forages and feeding and weather, right? Most of the regions, they have snow, they have really cold winters, when a lot of the focus of my research are in tropical and subtropical where we don't have those extreme mm-hmm. weathers in the winter. And it's also associated with a lot of indicus. Uh, influenced breeds right? and with tropical forages that also come with uh, a really high production and very low nutritive value.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: I have, the, the academia has allowed me to explore those areas because I am in Florida that is a extremely unique place in everywhere that I have been in the world, Florida is very unique. But I have been in other tropical and subtropical zones where it varies quite a bit um, because of the altitude, soils type, and everything else. So we we can find some subtropical zones that are really comfortable, although you can reach higher temperatures. But they are much more, I think, um, suitable for cattle production than, for example, Florida, that is an environment that is extremely challenging. For agriculture in general, but beef cattle for sure.
2: Um, it's interesting. You know, you said you don't have those uh, extreme temperatures in the winter. So that's great. You don't have any, you don't have blizzards and things like that. But you also don't have any cold weather to kill the bugs. And that's very important where for me is I don't want the bugs year round. The, the mosquitoes are back and I really don't like it. So, um, but I'm interested, not that sorry to take us off on a tangent, but you were talking about I'm um, very productive, but low nutritive forages. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what kind of forage is that are, are you speaking about? Because that's going to be very different than something that I have here in Kansas or we have in the Great Plains. So could you talk a bit more about that? Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, and I, I can tell you about the, the whole Florida. And then there is a more unique site that is where I'm located because I am south of I-4. And about three and a half hours north of Miami. Okay. So in this region, really tropical forages can be perennial
2: because oh, okay. we have
0: almost no winter, right? When right. you go yeah. to North Florida, they will be close to South Georgia, close to Alabama. Some of the species that I will talk to you, they will not be persistent there. They will die because even though they will have like 10 uh, cold days a year, uh, mm-hmm. Nights that will be below thirty-two, yeah. and then those fords may not be perennial like they are here. So I will talk to you about this uh, general Florida, and then specifically about this uh, subtropical, almost tropical region that we are at right here in South Florida. That sounds um, great. And um, if if you talk to everybody in the nation, they will know about alfalfa and alfalfa, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: Th- those are very popular. So we'll talk. Uh, yeah, I live in the country. <laughs> exactly, and that's what everybody's comfortable, and that's what they know, and we don't have either one here. Okay. So yeah, <laughs> so that that is that is not a problem for us at all, um, but but it also a challenge because you go to professional meetings, right? And you have two presentation about alfalfa in Canada or one in Montana, and then you have people from. I don't know from Virginia talking about fescue and then we, <laughs> right? <laughs> talking about something that nobody knows what it is. Right. But we do have a a, a large portion of in, in more in North Florida of Bermuda grass. Okay. The hybrid Bermuda grasses mm-hmm. um, that are quite popular. Um, I think in the whole southeastern U.S. and we have some. Those for this for us, they are more used for hay and silage production. They are a little more productive, but they require better fertility conditions that we don't have. We have one forage that is our main forage here that is called Grass, that is paspelo notatum. It's a forage from South America that um, everybody likes grass because it's very persistent. You can abuse, it's similar to the fescue, the endophyte-infected fescue that you have there. Right.
2: Yeah. That we, I'm putting love in quotations
0: that we love. <laughs> exactly. And and I think a lot of people like the Bahia grass here because it's persistent. It tolerates all the abuse that you can have. And it is the backbone of the beef cattle production in Florida. So that's okay. what, if you go to a ranch, it may be North Florida, South Florida, you're going to find out that the beef cattle ranch, they, they have about 80% of the pastures are Bahia grass. Okay. And then it comes to uh, South Florida, they have these very unique cultivars that are more adapted to tropical areas. And those will be stargrass, uh, limpo grass, um, brachiaris,
2: penicums.
0: So those are uh, all the different types that are much more popular here in South Florida, but they don't persist many times if you grow them up north
2: so that's uh, again the, the stark differences and i think that's one of the the great things about the beef industry in the united states is that like there's a thousand ways to do it because we have so many different um climate regions in the united states we have like the tropical areas you're talking about in florida we have the plains where i'm at even though i it's you know hot and muggy we have the, you know the the pacific northwest we have the dry southwest there's so many different things and i find it so interesting to learn about what different people do in different regions because it's never the same. Um, you were we earlier. You mentioned um, that you uh, you have different alternative uses of forage crops. So is that is that forage crops used in a different way, or is that just different forage crops? Like, what does that mean?
0: Yeah, uh, I started a program many years ago when they they have a wave of the biomass production. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember that for bioenergy. Um, those tropical forages, they are, they are ideal for that condition because they have a much more efficient carbon fixation pathway. Okay. So that's why they are so productive. So we have forage crops here that are warm season perennial grass that will grow like 7, 8, 10 feet tall. Oh my. And we will accumulate lignin and, and cell wall uh, mm-hmm. as much as they can grow, mm-hmm. um, uptake a lot of nutrients from the ground. Um, so th- those are the different uses. At that time, they have like that big wave trying to convert cellulose to ethanol, right? right. And I think uh, they made a little progress, but then they dropped the program. Not, not that I'm supportive of the whole idea, mm-hmm. but because we have that... So I do believe the warm season perennial forages are a great candidate because they grow very much with very little, very efficient. And, yeah. for, and for that purpose, um, in theory, we didn't need to consider the, the nutritive value, right? When you are growing for biomass, you just want a biomass. Right. And then, yeah. yeah. Later, we learned that that was not the case. So for the microbes to work, when you grow a biomass, that you have a lot of cell wall, polyphenols, and everything else, we couldn't also, the microbes that will break the cellulose could not work very well in the process of moving cellulose to ethanol. So we learned that we even in the biomass production and trying to generate uh, biofuels from cellulose, we need a forage that will have a little better Nutritive value, and yep. it's still, it's still in the same uh, topic, uh, another thing that, two other things I think that is main uh, in our program is we use these warm season perennial fords as a um, um, phytoremediator. Okay. Um, that is, we have what they call hotspots, places where they have confined animals in mm-hmm. the past. Or they have, for some reason, high concentrations of nitrogen and phosphorus. Right. Uh, phosphorus is a big problem in South Florida, oh, uh, or okay. a, per, a perceived problem because we are sitting on the top of a phosphorus rock. There okay. is a lot of mining here, mm-hmm. um, so we use those warm season perennial fords because they grow a lot and they take a lot of nutrients to remove the nutrients from the soil. Gotcha. So we. We also have used it not with the forage purpose, but mainly to uptake the nutrients, and and the last one is is as we mentioned at the start the the fact that they are so good to fix carbon, right, That's and right, uptake yes. carbon from the ground. So it has been also used to as a, a carbon sequestration tool, That's
2: right? Great. Yeah,
0: and and mainly on the context of beef cattle production, because they have the forage. The only thing is a little better management can make us to accumulate a little more carbon. And mm-hmm. that will be crucial if if we need to decrease the the CO2 concentration in the air, right? Mm-hmm. And I think right, that, yeah. is, that is something that we have done for many, many years mm-hmm. through history. All the grazing lands, they have, Sequester carbon and have fixed that carbon for many, many years and we never got the credit for. Absolutely. And now it's one part of my program is also to report those benefits.
2: Oh, that's important. That's, I mean, you're right. We have been doing that and never thought to tell people outside of academia and the beef industry about it. And we're now at the point where we need to share that what's actually happening and what we've been doing for a long time um, is that part of your research now sharing that uh, outside of academia you know the carbon sequestration and, sh- and sharing those findings
0: yeah absolutely um I we have, at the research center we have like a multidisciplinary group mm-hmm. so there is a soil scientist here Dr. Maria Silveira, and she is pretty much an expert in carbon okay so that is her main focus so I come in the program with the forage portion. Mm-hmm. And so we work together to, so she does a lot of the soil measurements and the fractionation of the carbon and determination of carbon emissions, so and so forth. And I come with the forage management to put together the, the
2: whole program. I think that's an important component that you just spoke about, that, you know, she's the soil side and you're the agronomy side and you work together that research mean uh, like the beef industry is complex, raising cattle is complex. And so is research. You can't change one thing and it not affect another piece. And so I think that's something we need to be more um, vocal about is how different segments of in aspects of beef production intersect with each other and that there's a trade-off, you know, there's not a blanket solution for for problems that there's a trade-off to things and you have to be aware of the trade-offs when we're looking for new methods or improvements of things like that.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. We, we still, because we walk with hats and boots, I think that still creates a little barrier, uh, translating from our environment to the general public. And, and is the general public now making most of the decisions regarding um, politics and votes? Because a lot of people move from the country, right, to the city. Yeah. And what? they are voting, but they are getting far, far away from agriculture. And I think we are trying to just keep telling our story, right? And trying to break those barriers, saying that somebody that wear a hat and a boot can also uh, relate to, you know, general life and general population problems like global warming.
2: Right. And I think it's, um, you know, we do need to keep telling our story and um, sharing information because you're right. People are removed from the farm and ranch. I like, Fifteen years ago or, or more we were hearing that the average person is two generations removed from the farm and ranch. Well, it's been at least fifteen or twenty years. Like we're now at probably closer to three generations people are removed from a farm and ranch. So it's even more important to continue to engage with people and, and talk about what we're doing on you know, with cattle and, and, and in agriculture industry.
0: Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a luxury that I think we have in the United States because people have comfort to be able to be concerned about things that are not part of their life. Because traveling around the world, you have a lot of places where people need to be really focused on their life to make it, right? Um, to, they need to know, they, they are not really concerned where the, the meat you come from, but they need to find out how to find the meat, right? Because uh, we, and a lot of countries in Europe, I think, what they call the first world countries. I think they have this luxury that I think we we can talk about that and they have people with different opinions that that can be concerned about things that many times they are not really a concern, right? <laughs> uh, but traveling around the world, I think the 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 problems really change and uh, I am really humble to to go in places where they need to find out where they're gonna have lunch. And many times they don't. And we don't have that problem. And I think we, we need to keep working so we'll never have that problem.
2: Yeah, we definitely don't have that problem. Um, I I have probably not. I've not traveled as much as you have around the world, but I have been to some other places where that was a concern, like where their next meal is coming from or having to budget, you know, scrib and save just to have enough meals, you know, for and such like that. And I think it's really easy for people to, it's, for some reason, it's really easy to criticize with a full mouth. (laughs) Yes,
0: (laughs) absolutely. So
2: that's definitely, you know, your job is really important to our industry because you are finding new ways for us to raise cattle using different forages and, and be more efficient. And so it's really important that we keep getting research from you and your colleagues. So that people like myself can take that and disseminate it to the general consumer and the, you know, the grocery shopper. And, and in terms of research, you talked about the research that you did with biomass in the past, but can you share something that you're working on now that's really exciting you?
0: Yes. Um, we we have a few programs that we keep we keep going for a little while and trying to keep keep making in progress. Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll mention probably the main three programs yeah. that I work with. Right. One is is to to find uh, for the cultivars that will be adapted to the habitat that, and the environment that we live around here. Um, I think that is an endless search. So I think if we can find something that it's more efficient, I don't want to produce more. Mm-hmm. I just want to produce more efficiently. right. So with that in mind, I have contacts in the Colombia in Seattle, and I have contacts in Asia and other places, Australia where I try to bring little ideas and some different systems and forage species and try to adapt it to our system here and make the necessary measurements to see if that is something promising that we will enhance and make our beef cattle production more efficient. Mm-hmm. I think that is something that I have been working on. We, we have a lot of new technology and helping with mm-hmm. that, such as uh, we have genetic markers, right, to see right. what is the efficiency of that plant to mm-hmm. uptake nitrogen. Nitrogen is probably for this grasses the most limiting nutrient. So if we can find a, a reliable marker that will tell us that that species can grow the same amount of biomass with less nitrogen, right, mm-hmm. that is a, a win situation for us. Because we will have to fertilize less and you're going to have the same or better product.
2: Right, yeah. That's, I, I love that you said that we don't necessarily have to produce more. We need to be more efficient. I think that's a, a, that's a great headline soundbite right there.
0: And, and that has been the search on those forage species. Uh, some people that don't work, and I have several colleagues that work in different areas of grasses and, and botany, and, and they, they are not really familiar with the grazing Um, activity and so a lot of plants come and go and they they are not really suitable because they fail because they are not really grazed properly right Um, Mm -hmm. so the grazing uh, portion of this whole thing on selection is is extremely important so I really focus on on having the animals challenging these new grasses Mm -hmm.
1: under different
0: conditions and with that in mind what I tell people I really like to kill them because if they die here at the research center, the producer will not have the same problem. So they, right. he, so I, I really force all the things that I tested here so we can create a better management and decide if that is a good candidate to be affording in our state. Um, so th- that is one portion. The other portion is, again, going back to the nutrient, the nitrogen, that is uh, quite a, a, a expensive, nutrient that we need to fertilize the grasses. Uh, Our grasslands are pretty much dominated by grasses, but we also have the opportunity to have some uh, legumes. Okay, yeah. Yeah. But again, it's unique from here because we here have very little opportunity to have cool season legumes during the cool season.
2: Right. So we don't have,
0: white clover used to be here, it's not anymore, primarily because we don't have enough water uh, to make it grow properly in the, in the winter for us. So we, we don't have a really reliable legume that will fix nitrogen and help us mm-hmm. to supply part of the nitrogen that we need from atmospheric fixation. Um, with that in mind, I have a program where I am always testing different legumes and selecting them. Mm-hmm. So we have some cultivars in the pipeline that we, we did some genetic modification to okay. try to, to change the characteristics of the plant and trying to make if those can be good options to be overseeded and planted on those warm season grass.
2: So here in Kansas, I, we do have white clover and we have them red and those are in both, all of our pastures or most of them. Um, so what what legumes do you have that you can, I mean, you said that you don't have many, but what you know what do you have that you can use down there?
0: I would say here in North Florida, when you have a, a little more subtropical, you can still use white clover, crimson clover, red clover in the winter. Okay. Um, the the growing season is not probably as long as in other places, but it's viable. It's mm-hmm. a great, it's a great management. But here in South Florida, where I'm at, we don't. They don't grow here. Just none. None. Gotcha. But we have the summer legumes that is the, are the ones that i work so okay. something that you grow in the summer with the warm season grass
2: okay and
0: okay. that is called Ashinomini nomini americana is one that is the most successful here okay but we also have uh, sun hemp that has been quite popular cover crop in the midwest and everywhere okay. it's a great plant um it's annual right it dies so you have to reseed, mm-hmm. but sun hemp. I have been working with sun hemp now, uh, mainly on the focus of cover crop and increase a little bit soil health and nitrogen fixation. But also, I'm converting that to make that a forage, and how okay. we can we can make improvements in the plant. So we hope that in about three, four years we may have a cultivar that will be released from us that we will have a good
1: forage characteristic.
2: Oh, that'd be great. Yeah, that would be great. So you take your research, I'm assuming, and you're di- you mentioned earlier in your bio that you're disseminating that science-based education to stakeholders and producers and other educators. So that's part of your extension work, right?
0: Yes, that's correct. My my official position is 60% research, 40% extension.
2: Okay. And so
0: but what those you- no- yeah, those numbers don't mean anything. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. like hundred research and hundred <laughs> extensions. Yeah. 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 What drew you to extension work? I mean, when you started out in your career, did you want to get involved in extension? Um, and if so, like kind of what's your favorite component of extension work?
0: Yeah, I, I really like the extension has a big structure, right? They have the what is expected from the academic standpoint regarding programs, activities, so on and so forth. So nobody likes the bureaucratic section of the whole thing right but there is the outreach section that is pretty much the interaction that we have Mm -hmm. with producers and and you know extending what we do and what they think and then it becomes a successful story i Mm -hmm. think that is uh, extremely rewarding and i think coming from my background is for me it's like my daily life
2: Uh uh-huh
0: um so if you ask me where you have your social i go to the florida academy association meeting that's that my social
2: last week right
0: yes in, yeah. in marco island yeah we were there at the convention i am the uh, hopefully we will find a, a new one but i am the chair of the research and education committee for the okay. florida academy association so i organize the meeting the research and education with some top. And then we have the presentations. We have what we call the Florida Cattle Enhancement Board.
2: Oh, okay. That
0: is uh, funded by the legislator. That is a program that funds research and extension programs Mm -hmm. in the state of Florida. Okay. So we also put together like a mini symposia where the the PIs from the projects, from the Florida Cattle Enhancement Board, come and give the presentation about what they are doing. Uh Uh-huh with the funds and the research, and it goes again from soil health to ketogenetics, heat tolerance. So we have all different topics. And it's it's quite exciting, but as I was telling you, so the extension or the outreach and the interaction with producers, I think it has been something natural for me that I I really appreciate and enjoy doing.
2: That's interesting. You're, um, this is just a side note, but last week, um, on the podcast, I interviewed Dr. Nicholas De Lorenzo, and he was at the Florida Cattlemen's meeting while we did this interview. So there's a lot going on in Florida right now in the summer. But that's a big job to organize all of that. You know, the scientific, the research, and, and all all that. And I can only imagine how many different topics there are um, that you're not only researching, but then you're trying to disseminate that information. Um, so when you're not doing all of this research or organizing it or talking to producers in extension work or working with cattle or recording podcast episodes, you doing do you have other things that you fill your time with? Do you have any fun hobbies that you want to share with the audience? Um, well, I
0: have uh, two daughters. They are 15 years old. Okay. So they are at the prime of their uh, extracurricular activities. Uh-huh. So that became part of my life. Right. So I, I really participate in all the volleyball tournaments and ballet recitals that we have around. So that is, I think it's it's a big part that we really enjoy, my wife and I. So I, I prioritize those. Right, <laughs> and, right. And when I'm not doing that, um, for many many years, I, I I have been involved with horses as okay. well. Great. So and I have my horses. And when I have time, I I go to some reining competition.
2: Oh, okay. Raining horses. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's a great way to spend money, but it is almost a sickness, but I, I really enjoy being around. I think it's more than a hobby is a therapy and, and something that really, I really have enjoyed for many, many years. So I think you'll not go away. I will, I, I will die doing that so.
2: I, I completely agree. We're on the same page. I have rodeoed my entire life and it's, um, it's an addicting hobby, passion therapy, whatever you want to call it. I, I completely agree with that. Are other members of your family involved with the horses with you or just you do that?
0: No, I do by myself. Um, they, they are not really excited about the, the traveling and the, the heat and feeding and cleaning. So, and I, I they don't bother me at all, so uh, you know, because it, it, it becomes so expensive that I think just one sick person in the house, I think it's sufficient.
2: That's true. My husband is not sick either, and
0: um,
2: yeah. I, I, mad, I think about how much it would cost if we were both sick with it. But my daughters love it. so um, uh-huh. we're we're gonna be in that chapter soon. So <laughs> yeah. well, well, that's great. Um, it sounds like you have a very, very full schedule um, and um, very meaningful work that you're doing.
1: It's time for our Famous Three.
2: We're here at the part of the podcast where we ask our guests the same three questions. And so they're not rapid fire. I'm not going to shoot them at you really quickly. But so... We ask every guest these. So the first question is, what is your favorite beef or cattle related book? It doesn't have to be like a research book. My husband has a book called The Battle of Bull Runs that's about dwarfism in Herefords, and he really likes it. So I don't know if you have some obscure book like that that you want to share with us. Um, yes, I.
0: we have a Florida book that is, I think you probably have heard about it, A Land Remembered by Patrick Smith.
2: Um I think yeah. Dr. DeLorenzo Lorenzo said that book last week.
0: Yes <laughs> it yes, 100. it's
2: all right.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a very common book here, but uh, when you are here in Florida and located where I'm at, so it's it's so uh, illustrative. It, it brings you memories and tr- make you to understand where we were and where we are right now uh-huh. and how cattle fit. In the whole process, right, through many, many years, uh, how important cattle has been and is still important here where we are. So it's it's a, it's such a great book. I think everybody that comes to Florida they read and and they they love
2: it. I two guests in a row have said that this book is great, and so I I had written it down when Dr. De Lorenzo had re- said it, something about it. But now that two people have said it, I'm gonna add it to my Amazon cart because it I. It must be that great. So so what is a book that is not related to beef for cattle that you are currently reading or maybe is one of your favorites?
0: I just finished reading the, the Countdown, Countdown 1945. Okay. It's, um, it's a book about the details on the Second World War. Okay. I like uh, history books.
2: Right. Yeah.
0: So I, I think that, that book, I really enjoy reading. I just finished it.
2: Uh-huh.
0: So it gives, it gives you a lot of details and, and tell you the story about the perseverance through the okay. whole process, how, how to get there. And, you know, I, the, I don't think the, the end, it's uh, a happy story, right? Because nobody oh, yeah. won. Nobody right. won. And there is no victory in war. But right. uh, I think just describing the process, I think it, it I, I really enjoy learning more about it
2: i really like historical um like history books too and particularly on world war ii my grandpa fought in world war ii and so i am adding that one i will be adding that one to my amazon um book wish list so thank you for that recommendation um okay the last wrap-up question is for a, a trait of someone that you admire or i guess think about someone that you admire what is a trait they possess that has allowed them to be successful
0: um I I believe that I have seen uh, like through through life you have seen people with all different characteristics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, good and bad, and I think one thing that stick out mainly now it becomes even more important it's, I think work ethics. Okay. Is somebody that is really reliable, and mm-hmm. and and we have seen. Uh, for example, in, in my college, I have some people that I identify early when I was in college and I didn't think about life or anything, right? We were, mm-hmm. just, we were just having fun and, and trying to make it to the next day. And it's amazing how we have a lot of smart people around me. And they have smart, really smart people that never made it, never become successful. And they have some that became extremely successful. Because mm-hmm. they were smart and they have a lot of work ethics. And, you know, you can have work ethics and not being smart and still make it in life, <laughs> right? right? But if right. you are very smart and clever, but you don't have the work ethics, I think it's very difficult to to make. And, and now it's become even more important because I think all the distraction that we have in life through social media and communication venues,
2: mm-hmm. right?
0: Uh, it seems that we are gravitating further, further away from just basic things. That means if I say something, I will do it. If I told that I will show up at eight, I will, right? Mm -hmm. And I will not go home until I finish. So it seems that those little basic things are becoming even more important.
2: That is one of my pet peeves is not following through on um, what you say you're going to do. I think you're hitting the nail right on the head with the the work ethic and the smart intelligence, you know, intersecting there. So, um, well, that is all the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything that you want to share with the audience, our listeners that that we didn't touch on?
0: Uh, I don't think so. I just would like to thank you for the opportunity. It was really enjoyable.
2: Thank you very much for coming on the show. I know that you're very busy because you told us about all the things that you're doing. So we really appreciate you taking time to join us here on the Beef Podcast show. If people want to find more information about your research or about the Joe Watt Podcast, where can they do that? Um,
0: we have a website here is the we can search in Google Range Cattle Research and Education Center.
2: Okay We will put that in the, we will put that in the show notes.
0: Yeah, um, So then they have a tab there for faculty. If you click on my tab, they will have the, all the podcast um, recordings there. Okay. And you also have the recent publications and few extension activities that we have in our program. So most of the information is there. I I don't quite use a lot of social media for personal for a professional purpose. I use more p- for personal purpose. So through the website, I think is the best venue to to have our activities there.
2: Okay, and the podcast is on the Range Cattle Research and Education site. Is it also available? on other podcast platforms
0: yes it is on in our youtube channel okay that is related to the website and is also available on podbean
2: on podbean okay we will make sure that we put those um in the show notes for our listeners to access those that's the joe what podcast on youtube and the range Cattle research and education website well we will make sure that people can access those i'll put that in the show notes for everybody Um, Thank you very much again, Dr. Vendramini, for joining us. And to our audience, we hope that you will join us next week on the Beef Podcast Show.